As a reminder, podcast listeners, we'd like to do a short survey to learn a little bit more about what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward for doing so, we're going to mail you for free your very own special boxes and lines socks while supplies last. All you have to do is go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey. And don't forget to tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks once again for listening. Over and out. Welcome to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. And today Welcome all to Boxes and Lines. Yes, so glad you could spend a wee bit of time with us. It's really good, John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have a very, very special guest today that I'm excited about, uh, one Jimmy Elkins. And some of you out there in the industry will probably recognize the name. But if you don't, you'll understand soon why we have him on the podcast. Uh, welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Great. Good for you. <laughs> well, and, we'll see what you say after the yeah, podcast yeah, is yeah. over. But We'll yeah. ask him at the end if he, if, yeah. if he still agrees with that statement. But uh, what I wanted to do is actually introduce how I met Jimmy. It's a pretty funny story. I was down in Arizona with their uh, state pension there. And in the room, he was introduced as their consultant and said, like, Elkins. And for like minutes, I'm like, Elkins, Elkins, Elkins. Then I'm like, I remembered Elkins from the, the father of the VWAP or whatever you want to call it. So we'll explain that to people as well. But yes, uh, Jimmy was down there consulting with the Arizona State Pension, as well as he's a, a professor with Arizona State University. And so I, I thought it'd be uh, funny to introduce you and maybe say, you know, tell us a little bit about your career. And then we have some questions after that, please. Well, I started many years ago on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange after coming out of the Army in 1966. I was on the floor of the Stock Exchange, and I became a member in 1967, became a $2 broker, and I worked on the floor from 67 through 79 on both exchanges, both the American and the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. I was, I was approached by a company named Abel Nozier Corp, who hired me to run their desk. They were a growing asset manager who was, uh, had a product which they sold to many institutions called Mom and Pop Services. It was a computerized um, money management system. And to make a long story short, they were collecting the money and uh, through Bass Stearns, who was their clearance agent. And they wanted to figure out how they could give less to Bass Stearns and earn more themselves. They were giving over one third away to, uh, to Bass Stearns for the trading. Huh. And I showed them a way of uh, <laughs> doing it for less and they could keep that. So we, I headed up the desk and in a, in a short amount of time, I showed them how we could do a two cent commission. The market at that time was eight or 10 cents. And this was the early eighties. Wow, it's crazy to think you were getting eight to 10 cents on <laughs> coming from yeah. a broker where we were getting fractions of a penny. I, I wish oh, it was back in those days. You know, the prices were fixed in those days, pretty well fixed. And the, you know, to do institutional trades, if you did a large order, at eight, 10 cents a share, it was big money. So at that time, many of the pensions 
came directly to the uh, brokers who were willing to participate, and they set up this refund program. And Abel Nozier, of course, did the refund because they were managing money for some large pensions. Mm -hmm. So the refund for the 10 cents, we would trade at 10 cents and give 8 cents back to the pension. So we could, we could effectively do it at 2 cents a share. Because of my experience on the floor, and I got $2 brokers to work a little cheaper than they normally would. That's <laughs> a lower price execution. So at that time, Dick McSherry was hired, and he was uh, out of uh, IBM and Chase custody. And he was friendly with the treasurer of, the Fo of Ford Motor Company at the time. And they called us out to uh, Ford, and they asked us if we would trade at two cents a share for them. And we said yes. And they directly gave us an order at a Manny Bank of Detroit uh, for the ESOP plan. After three months of trading, the, uh, they called us back out to, to Dearborn to One American Road. I'll never forget it. And they congratulated us. They told us at the same time we were trading Ford stock at two cents a share, the uh, ESOP stock, Goldman Sachs was handling a buyback at eight cents a share. So they were very excited by that. And at the same time, when they gave us the order, they asked us to supply the volume weighted average price of trading every day. So I sent the trader off my desk. In those days, they only had Fitch tapes. I sent the trader down and we calculated the VWAP by hand and we sent it back every time we completed a trade each day. They said, not only did we beat them exclusive of commission, we delivered a better execution. So we didn't know that at the time, of course, because we didn't know Goldman Sachs was handling the corporate buyback. So they asked us if we would offer the two cent rate to all their managers. And Ford had, you know, the top managers, Fidelity, Capital Guardian, all the top managers around the country, Bank of Boston. They, of course, are fiduciaries, so they can't tell a money manager who to trade with on a fiduciary basis. So they sent out a letter that they tried Abel Nozier's trading at two cents a share, we'd like to make the rate available to you. And nobody traded. <laughs> About a month later, Ford called me in. They were very upset that nobody adhered to their letter. They asked Dick and I to travel all over the country and explain to those managers what we do. And when they asked why we're there, tell them, I sent you. And that was the treasurer's message. And was v, was VWAP like, um, that was the first time like VWAP as a name had been used, right? Is that correct? Yeah, correct. And just so people listening in, because we don't, not everyone who listens in on this, Jimmy, or are in the industry, VWAP is a very, very like standard algorithm used today. So, you know, Jimmy's talking about 1984, 2020, every single broker has a VWAP algorithm on their desk and it just stands for volume weighted average price. And a really easy way to look at it is, let's say you wanted to buy hundred shares, you bought 50 of them at $5, 50 of them at $10. The VWAP is at 750. You just 
multiply the number of shares bought by the price all along on every trade and then you average it out. And um, that's a massive, massive benchmark used in the industry still today in 2020. So that's why we thought it was really interesting. You know, obviously when I met you, I knew you were the VWAP guy and we Googled it, but the first execution in VWAP according to Wikipedia was Ford Motor in 1984. So that's why it's, it's really cool to have you on this podcast and hear the history of it because it's something we still talk about every single day here, which is pretty remarkable. You know what? You know what's pretty interesting about it, uh, which you'll find interesting. Uh, the VWAP grew for one other reason. At the time, the whole street got upset. All of the major firms got upset with Able Nosia because we were directly offering this two cent rate. And, you know, in a 10 cent market, it was affecting all their revenues and all the other pensions started to come to us. By the end of the 80s, we had 400 of the biggest accounts in the United States, including 48 states. The way we created that was very interesting. We built the VWAP by buying the Fitch tapes from the New York Stock Exchange. Dick and I had this idea and we calculated the VWAP for every stock that traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And in those days, 95% uh, of the trading was at the New York Stock Exchange. Right. So consequently, we went to the pensions and we told them that we created the measurement in our computer systems because it was a simple calculation. It's, it's the uh, number of shares times the price equals the dollars and then we added up all the dollars that trade in whatever period we're measuring the VWAP and divide it by the number of shares traded and you came up with an average with a volume weighted average price. Let me ask you a quick question on that because I, sometimes today and then I have questions or your opinion on VWAP today but sometimes people will say well if you're a big institution and you're trading a ton of volume in a particular name Aren't you then the V in the VWAP, meaning your volume is controlling what ultimately the price is? is it, and, and, and usually, genuinely, gen, generally, when people use VWAP, it's more of a passive algo. They're not putting in millions of shares. I'm just curious, back in 1984, before everyone adopted to VWAP, I'm wondering, you, you must have been doing some big, big orders. Well, why don't, yeah, why don't we give you an example? Yep. The best example is... Let's say institution A is selling 500,000 shares of stock and he decides to solicit a bid for that stock from a block position, like a Goldman or a Solomon or an Oppenheimer. They were the big ones in those days. So they would discount the stock. So let's say it was IBM and it was trading from 70 to 72 in a given day. And let's say the block went off. In those days, the block had to be printed on the block exchange. Let's say the block went off at 70. And then after that, there was loads of trades that took the stock up to 72 because IBM came out with their earnings. So now they just cost the pension if the volume weighted average price was 71. They just cost the pension $500,000, Yeah. period. You know, so it doesn't matter whether the volume controls. It's, it's all BS. 
<laughs> That's a great point. Well, I can understand why you, why you became so popular um, with a number of pension funds, and you're still consulting for pension funds today when you kind of re-entered the, the business lately, right? I still consult for brokers, and I, I recently completed a consulting job for Russell Investments where the CEO asked me to do a SWOT analysis of the whole company. Little did I know that uh, they were owned by Northwest Mutual and Northwest Mutual was looking to sell them. So uh, I stayed with Russell for three years um, and uh, did that for him. And uh, I, I do jobs, all sorts of consulting jobs from pensions to brokers to money managers. I did a, a Bank of New York consulting job I enjoy it. It keeps me busy. I retired from State Street. I sold my company. Dick and I left to finish my background. We went to Abel and Nozier, our senior partners, in 1989. And we told them that we were getting market feedback, that the marketplace was going global. So we wanted to buy data in all the countries and create averages in all the countries and sell the VWAP all over the world. What happened was Abel and Nozier was so successful in doing so well with domestically, they said no. So Dick and I left very high paying jobs and gave up our partnership and went and formed Elkins McSherry in 1990. By 1999, we had the three biggest custody banks bidding for us. State Street, Chase, and Bank of New York. We ended up selling it to State Street. Dick and I ran the State Street offices in New York, and I ran the first broker outside of Boston for State Street in New York from 99 to 04 when we both retired. Following my wife around uh, Whole Foods, <laughs> in retirement and living on a golf course that at the boulders here in Arizona, where I don't play golf, I was going crazy. So uh, a bunch of industry people called me back to do some consulting. So fortunately, State Street, when they bought Elkins McSherry, kept my name in the limelight. So because it, it still goes the measurement, the global measurement that they have still goes by Elkins McSherry. Yeah, absolutely. It's been an extraordinary career, and I'm, I'm interested, Jimmy, to get your thoughts as a floor trader from, from early days, what you think about based on your understanding of the floors that functions now. As you know, most exchanges are wholly electronic in the equity space. Uh, New York Stock Exchange still has a floor, but it operates obviously very differently. Do you think there's still a place for floor trading uh, in equities markets now? And uh, how do you think about that that transition? Well, I believe it. things go in waves. The first wave is, of course, in 1975 when they eliminated negotiated rates. Everybody thought the exchange system was over because, you know, there would be no money in it anymore. So what this big firms did smartly was start to churn the institutional accounts. So they created volume to make up for that difference and they made much more money at that point. So now that they were in that position, all of a sudden that the, the specialists controlled the business because everything was down on the floor. 
So as soon as, I think the first shot heard around the world was when Goldman Sachs bought Spiel Leeds Kellogg. And what they did was they, they took over, it was the biggest specialist on the floor and the specialist had the vote. So they, they bought a big specialist. Merrill Lynch bought a big specialist. All of a sudden, those big firms control the flow. So by controlling the flow, and I know there's a long-winded answer, but you have to get the whole picture to understand my answer today. So by controlling the flow, they could fragment the market and they could break up the market system of the monopoly by selling to the regulators that this is the greatest way to be. I mean, it's competition. But there was one thing that was happening when they broke up the competition. The New York Stock Exchange was totally regulated. So if something went wrong, it was, there was a referee there to blow the whistle say stop and fix the problem. When you're in fragmented markets, transparency disappeared. So without transparency, everybody's stealing from everybody today. So as long as the system is fragmented and the, the SEC and the government agencies allow this lack of transparency, you're going to have electronic trading. They're just going to figure out ways to beat the next guy. It's, it's similar no matter what changes the regulators make on Wall Street, in my opinion. The big firms will figure out how to beat it. Well, it certainly is the, the advantages of speed have, you know, sort of increased to the point where people are, you know, competing over millions of a second advantages. There's got to be some point of diminishing return where there's there's not much social utility and all of that. So certainly there's a lot of institutional investors, including pension funds, like the folks that you talk to, that were very receptive to our idea about leveling the playing field. It's, it's interesting how you say it, Jimmy, because I remember when Brad and I were raising money to start IEX and I would go around to people and my pitch was the market is too fragmented. Basically what you were saying. And they were like, well, how are you going to fix it? We're going to launch another venue and fragment it further. Like, I, I, I realized how insane that sounded, but exactly what you said, what we, what we set out to do is something a little bit different. And we don't pitch IEX really on this podcast, but in essence, we wanted to slow things down. And if a strategy's sole determinant of success was that it was faster than the next one, we were able to take that out of play. That, that was kind of the goal. And we had thought with that, and if successful, it would lead to maybe a consolidation in the market. It obviously hasn't happened yet. Actually, I had a question back to, um, your, your role at ASU, what exactly are you teaching uh, college kids? I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what are they most curious about? Because I remember before I got into Wall Street, I just saw people making money and people on the floor and the, there's an exciting allure to Wall Street, whereas now it's very electronic. I'm just curious, what, what are your, what's your students' perspective? What are they most interested in? What do you teach them? Yeah, Ronan was basically throwing pagers out of the back of a truck, as I as I recall. <laughs> in the book anyway. yeah. yeah, one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, the important thing is is that they're all graduating seniors, and most of them were financial majors, and they were all going to Wall Street in some form, going to some of the firms' training programs or whatnot. I became an elective, and ASU let me teach my course, trading in financial securities. So one of the things that I agreed to with, with ASU or the 
Carey School of Business was. I could teach my course my way, you know, and, and I could use a blackboard if I wanted to, or I could do it any way I wanted. And my goal was practical versus theoretical, because I think the th theoretical teaching in college is absurd. I started this practical uh, way of teaching, and I fill up my class each semester. I only teach the spring semester two days a week, and my students love it And because a lot of them are interested in trading or getting involved in trading or doing uh, uh, dot-com trading, that type of thing, because they hear these dreams of big money being made and you know, all, and so I tell them the truth, how it works. You're the last to know the direction of the market. I teach them about how they eliminated the uptick rule in shorting and, and how, uh, because that uptick rule was eliminated, you can get bear raids like Lehman and Bear Stearns years ago. That took place and took the whole business down almost. Have you, have you talked to any of them about entering into, the, into Wall Street? Yeah, yeah. And it worked because I'll tell you, I always found it funny when we met Michael Lewis, he told us he wrote Liar's Poker to dissuade people from working on Wall Street, but it, it became almost like a, the anthem of Wall Street and it brought a lot of people into Wall Street, which was the exact opposite effect. Well, remember, there's a glamour to Wall Street that you're contending. You're contending with that glamour. You know, I'm one of those guys that, that believes in doing the right thing. I teach them about conflict of interest between trading proprietarily and being a bank. I mean, it's absurd to me. Those things changed the whole business and gave licenses to people to steal, if they were willing to steal. I mean, there's moral people in the business, but in the old days we had a rule, I think it was rule 390, well, you had to cross your block on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So you had to fill the, the buyers or the sellers at the, at the prices, and you, could, and you had to give them the block price. So as soon as the market went fragmented, and, and that was one of the goals, they could trade blocks anywhere and nobody could question it. In fact, in a lot of places, they weren't even printed. I was going to ask you, Jimmy, just from a personal perspective, because you, know, you talked about your teaching role there at Arizona State. And since you said you're uh, teaching, you teach during the spring. This year, I assume you had to do a lot of that teaching remotely or through Zoom. And I'm kind of curious as to how that, what was that transition like? And what has that experience been like for you? Assuming that you haven't done that before. Well, at the beginning, it was, it was uh, horrible. I mean, I had to figure it out. <laughs> I had to... My course was really interaction, face-to-face -face interaction, and I, you know, I would teach them by my practical experience and the things I believed and the things that 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 mattered to me. But when you go Zoom, you know, it's different because each of the if you have forty-five kids, you know, they might not tune in to the whole class, or they might right. go get a drink, or. They, they can't all, you can't see all the faces at the same time. It's impossible on the screen. So you'd have to scroll, there's a scroll down to see the number of people uh, that are on. So I would try to get everybody to sign in and see their faces. And most of them do participate because I get very good ratings in my class. They enjoy it. But uh, 
after two or three sessions, I started to get used to it. It's going to be challenging for the fall semester. Yeah. Uh, some of my friends who teach the fall semester are bewildered because of all these rules and regulations that they're trying to create to get uh, an active class. But the other half of, half of it is going to be Zoom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of living with that now, Jimmy, because as we were talking with you before we, we started recording, we're looking at when we, IEX, can be back in the office. And, you know, there's obviously COVID concerns aside, right? There's, there's a lot of rules and regulations now as to how you need to set your office up, how many feet apart everyone must sit directionally, which way you can walk in the hallways. It's stickers and everything like this. There's, there's a lot of stuff that we need to do. Everyone needs to do, not just IEX. Well, it's going to be challenging because what's happening is a lot of, a lot of the customer firms, you know, the financial institutions are, it's becoming a bonanza for them. If they keep their, a lot of employees home, they don't need as much space. You know, it changes the whole configuration of the street. Yes. They save enormous amounts of money from T&E, from travel. I mean, it's a whole different world. Absolutely. Yeah, even office space, Jimmy, like going forward, right, we, we continue to grow. But now we're like, we've, we've proven, call it the last six months almost, we've been out of the office. We've proven that you can be productive using tools like Zoom. Now, that's a world where a lot of people are at home. So when clients go back, I do think you need sales back in the office, but maybe there's other uh, functions within the company that actually could now do some desk hoteling and work permanently from home. And there's there's big savings there because obviously, you know, real estate in New York still ain't cheap. I think you could do some of that, um, but I really am a big believer that in order for people to really get the experience of working in a company and have the right kind of collaboration, they need to spend some of the time with physically with their coworkers. I just think that it's, it's, it feels weird to me in this, you know, these last six months when we brought new employees on not to have any experience of them other than kind of like a picture on the, you know, on the, the Zoom <laughs> it, box. Yeah, it is kind of strange. Let, let me give you a concrete example. I founded a new measurement company which uh, we just rolled out. It's called GoLab Partners. And what we do is we measure culture, controls, and business models. We created a model where we, we basically uh, we offer to asset managers measurement in things like culture, diversity, risk, compliance, allegations, governance, resources, things that they, that they felt were never measurable. We take public data and we put it in our universes and it's very effective and we have significant interest in this new type of measurement. And what we do is we get public data and we compare the customer to their peers. For example, you know, if State Street wants to see themselves in diversity, how they stack up in diversity versus all the other custody banks, we're showing it. So to make a long story short, explaining what this new product does, we rolled it out and all of a sudden we didn't have to go to the customer. Everything was done. Everything was done over, over, uh, over the machine, over the Zoom or, or go to market or any of these tools that 
either they had or we had. I mean, big institutions. We just made presentations to MRSA, to to uh, Citibank, to uh, State Street, to places like that. That's good for your T&E. Yeah, it's so effective, it's crazy. Because, and not only that, just to answer your question about employees being together, I don't know, I spend more time with my partners. My partners are up in Tacoma. Um, we have partners back in Boston. We have seven partners, so it's from Tacoma to Boston to Seattle to Arizona. We spend more time with each other than we did when we were together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like we have a remote employee, for example, out of Chicago, and now we're on Zoom with him every day, whereas he comes to our office like maybe two weeks a month. But when he's not here, like I was saying before, I, my predisposition is why would I ever get on a video call? Whereas now we've become like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, whatever it is, everybody's become well-versed in it. Like my dad in Ireland sings in the choir and they do practices where they meet. Like on Zoom, it's, it's hilarious. The new normal is used too much, but the new normal is definitely going to be different. Like I hear John Ramsey and saying like, it's, um, there, there's, there's a lot of good being together as well, but uh, a lot more can be done remote over things like Zoom than I'd ever thought possible. And uh, it's actually not being so bad. I've been made a believer. And one of the interesting things, one of my sons, He's the head of surveillance at Coinbase, you know, this new digital yeah. thing. And uh, they told him not to come back to the office till the first quarter of 21, as it looks right now. He's yeah. going to work from home. He's, he's an executive and he's got a big position, but he's sitting home working. My other son is, is one of the top salesmen at Market, M-A-R-K-I-T, the, uh, you know, the data company. And, and Jake has been told to stay home until 21. Yeah. You know, they're all working for, and he's a salesman, a road salesman. Yeah. So he, he's doing everything from his house. And you know what he found out? He told me, he told me he's doing more business now than he ever did. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, it's I mean, kind of yeah. like, a, it's about finding a new balance, I think. And I, you know, even I miss seeing Ronan uh, in person. It's something I never thought I'd utter, but uh, we're going to, uh, you know. <laughs> I miss you fine, too, John. Fine, thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you, my little leprechaun. Here he goes. Uh, we're, we, yeah. we we have to ask Jimmy our our question of questions because we we try to keep this podcast for the millennials commutable. So uh, a question we ask every guest. I, I don't know if we prepped you on this, is but we always ask every guest what is their favorite Wall Street based movie. What's yours, Jimmy? My favorite was Wall Street, and and the reason it was my favorite, it always sticks out. As I grew in the business, the words greed is good. <laughs> As I, you know, when I owned my own companies and I worked in a smaller company, Gable Noja, what we found was we found an interesting thing that you could control your own destiny. Uh, you could work with people that were moral. You know, in my day, it was your word is your bond. And, and today, you know, you don't know if you're getting a straight answer or you're making a deal with anyone. When I was on the floor of the stock exchange, you could trade a million shares of stock at $50 a share and you didn't need lawyers. You didn't need anything. You just said, I'll take it or, and he'll say sold. And we had a deal. I mean, it's a different world today. So the words greed is good always sticks out in my mind. <laughs> 
Well, I That's, think we can all agree that we can do with a lot fewer lawyers. Uh, so, well, uh, John Ramsey is a lawyer, by the I, way. Well, I, I am, but as he know. said, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I appreciate why, you saying that's that. That's why I can say that with confidence. Yeah. And then for for you joining our podcast, which we we really really appreciate, and actually I found this really interesting. We give all our guests a special pair of boxes and lions socks, so they're going to be on their way to you. Trust me, Jimmy. When I heard we were giving away socks, I'm like, what? But they're actually good looking and they feel real good and wear them with pride. Honestly, it's great to see you again. We really appreciate you spending the time with us. I think we'd like to have you back on the podcast in the future. Um, this has been really, really good. I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Absolutely. Anytime. I enjoyed it myself. It's always nice when people are still interested in, uh, in a 56-year history going back. <laughs> I, there's there's not many of those histories out there, so it was very interesting to hear. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great history. Congratulations. You know, the best part of it is that maybe this new thing, this new measurement I have, if that works, I'll, I say to myself, I'll do it again. <laughs> you, you, you never know. Keep on trucking. Absolutely. Good luck to you. Over and out. Boxes Over and, and out. <laughs> Bye. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.